Turning your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. We're back in this great chapter of the book of Titus. And if you are able to stand with me, I want to read our text. Not only chapter 2, verse 2, but also verses 1 through 16 of this great, or 15 of this great chapter. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's copies in front of you. You can grab or you can share with somebody next to you. Okay, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Well, I recently read a, um, uh, a family, an account of a family who visited um, some relatives in another state for a few days, and so they made their way to their relative's place for a number of days, and then one late afternoon, after spending um, some time with their relatives, they began uh, packing up to leave, and they had brought their uh, young small dog with them to uh, this relative's home, but could not find him in the house. And so the kids were running around frantically all over the house trying to find this, this dog. Um, so eventually the mother, um, insightfully, insightfully enough, went to the backyard to look for this uh, dog. And behold, there was the small dog in the mouth of a coyote. So obviously she got very frantic. She started yelling at the coyote, picked up a stick, and as she approached the coyote to swing that stick and hit him, the coyote dropped the dog. Um, that little dog ended up uh, being rushed to the hospital, and after an excruciating surgery and a hefty bill, as you can imagine, the dog was okay. As I reflected on that account, um, I started to think about that particular uh, coyote's um, strategy and many animals like it, where the strategy with this coyote is to attack its prey in isolation. Whenever they see an animal isolated, then that animal is easy prey for them to attack it. And I thought, you know what? That's the same way it is in the Christian life, isn't it? In the Christian life, Satan, beloved, loves it when you and I also function independently of the body of Christ, also function in isolation. And part of his strategy is to get you to not consider the importance of community and of the need to be around other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but instead to be isolated away from the body. And it caused me to think about Titus chapter 2 and, and ask myself, why is it that I love this chapter in the Bible and why it's been so instrumental in my life and in the lives of others whom I've taught it to and counseled this uh, chapter, uh, just discussed this chapter with? The reason why Titus 2 is so important to me personally and why it's been so impactful for me is because it reminds me of the fact that the Christian life is not designed to be lived individualistically independently or in isolation from the community of faith, the body of Christ, fellow brothers and sisters, the church. Generally, the world tells us otherwise, doesn't it? 
Generally, the world tells us that if you're a capable person or a capable leader out in society, and if you're going to be something someday, then you need to be strong. You need to be independent. You need to be self-sufficient, self-educated. You need to be autonomous. You don't need other people. And if you do, it's because you, you, you need something from them in order to advance yourself. That's why you would seek other people, right? That's what generally our society tells us, implicitly or explicitly. And yet the Bible, beloved, says otherwise. The Bible tells Christians and believers that you and I are dependent upon God and dependent upon the body of Christ, other believers, We are deficient in ourselves. We are inadequate. We are to be accountable, not autonomous in the Christian life. We need the Lord and we need others. And there are various beautiful metaphors used in the Bible to remind us of the fact that we are dependent upon God and others. When when believers are described, all of the redeemed, they're described as a church, as a church in the Bible. A church is a collective corporate gathering of people, not one person, but a collective gathering of the redeemed who have been bought out of slavery to sin and now are are to be under the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a church, a gathering, a collective group of people who are redeemed. We're a community, if you will. We are a body, a living, vibrant organism with, with members dependent upon one another. Just think about what it would be like for somebody to chop off your foot or a finger or a toe. Would it hurt? Yes, right? You need those body parts, right? That's the metaphor given to us in the Bible that we are a body, individual members of one another, a collective group. We are a household, a household. Christians are a part of one family, God's family, we've been adopted by faith in Jesus Christ into one family and our Heavenly Father cares for His family. We ought to be looking out for one another. All of those metaphors then emphasize that though we are unique individuals, we are a part of a community, beloved, and we need one another. We need one another. We cannot function independently of one another. And I believe that's part of why what, what Paul's instructions to Titus were in chapter 2 for the various groups that Titus is to instruct. Titus was to remind these believers in the various churches that now having been rescued from the wrath of God, which was aimed at them, and having been forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, they were now a community of faith. They were no longer independent people, individualists, if you will, but they were a community No longer called to live for themselves, but called to live for God, for His glory, and relating to one another properly in a Christian community. And so Titus is to instruct various groups as to how they are to conduct themselves and relate to one another if they are to give glory to God, and if they are to edify and build up one another. And not only that, if they are to put the gospel on display before an unbelieving, wicked generation at that time. It is the same thing for us today, beloved. If we want to give glory to God, if we want to build up one another, if we want to put the gospel on display, we must seek to live in community and conducting ourselves in a godly way in the way that we relate to one another in the church. And so we saw that the first group that Titus is to instruct in chapter 2 and verse 2 is older men, older men, and strategically so, right? Because after leaders... Older men have the capacity, if they seize upon the opportunity, to have the greatest impact and influence in the church. Far from being passive, older men. Far from being complacent in your Christian life. Far from having, living with a sense of, of insignificance or inferiority. Older men are to have a powerful influence upon the next generation. And the Bible doesn't give you an out with relation to your responsibility to invest into the next generation. It is your responsibility to do so according to this chapter and other texts. Tim Challey is commenting on Titus chapter 2 verse 2. writes this, quote, Having progressed in years, ability, character, and godliness, older men are to cast aside all that hinders their growth and press on until the very end. Greater age actually brings greater accountability and responsibility. For they, are, for they are now responsible not only for their own development, but for the development of younger men. 
Just as a great runner holds back a great burst of speed for the last few feet of his race, a godly man makes his final years the one in which he displays a final burst of maturity. Why? So that you would invest into the next generation, right? This is the responsibility of older men. But as we saw, older men must be a a certain kind of man, right? And so last week we began seeing three aspects of the life of older men that he must develop. That he might have a powerful and positive influence upon the next generation. and And in so doing glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw, if you remember, that older men, first and foremost, as to their character, are to be Christ-like. They are to be, look at verse 2, temperate, dignified, and sensible. They are to be Christ-like individuals. They are not to succumb to a culture that that says that once you reach a certain age, you're set in your ways, you're too old to change, and you can now kind of roll into eternity, so to speak. No. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to that goal of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, of becoming more like Jesus. Paul, when he wrote in Philippians there, he was already past his 60s. He was an older man. And yet, years after his conversion from Acts chapter 9, he was a man who still desired to pursue the goal of knowing Jesus, of becoming like Jesus. So older men, as to their character, are to be Christ-like. As to their conduct, they are to be mature. He says in verse 2 that they need to be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. That word sound there has the idea of healthy, but also stable, mature, in faith, in love, in perseverance. As to their relationship with with God, older men are to have a pattern of trusting God because they know their God. They believe His promises. He has a faithful track record with them, so they, they trust Him. As to their relationship with others, they are known as being people lovers. They love people, their enemies and their friends. As to their suffering, they are men who persevere. They strive to live well under their trials. They understand that they live in a broken world, but there is hope because of Jesus. So they press forward toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. They persevere in their trials and in their sufferings. And so now this morning, what we want to do is look at the third aspect of the life of older men that they must develop if they are to have a powerful impact upon the next generation. Thirdly, we see this. As to their calling... Older men are to reproduce or multiply themselves. As to their calling, they are to reproduce themselves or multiply themselves. Older men, Christ-likeness and maturity are not ends in themselves. You don't pursue Christ-likeness or maturity in the Christian life for the purpose of glorifying yourself, for the purpose of selfish ambition, selfish promotion, self-advancement. You pursue these things first and foremost for the glory of God. And the way that you can glorify God is by reproducing yourself via your example. And that is how you multiply yourself into the lives of other people, the younger generation, by your example. Example is so powerful, isn't it? Some of you have experience in various fields of work. Some of you, for instance, have worked at restaurants. Some of you work in the uh, media industry or movie industry. Some of you are general contractors. Some of you uh, do construction work. Some of you are plumbers. Some of you are doctors, perhaps, in various fields of doctoral kind of work. Some of you have been or are firemen. You've been, some of you are lawyers, Whatever the field that you find yourself in, you understand something about what we mean by training, don't you? Training. In every one of those fields, you have reproduced yourself or multiplied yourself into the life of somebody else so that they can carry on the work when you're not there or so that they can help you with the work in whatever field you find yourself. And what does this training involve? This training involves, first of all, instruction, right? They need to understand, they need to impart knowledge to them about the particular field of work. Build on perhaps what they already know. So there's that knowledge uh, portion. 
But there's also praxis or, or practice of the application of that instruction, of that knowledge unto hands-on experience. And in that training, the most important component is your example, isn't it? Your example. Your example is so crucial and absolutely essential because you need to show them what you mean by what you're saying. And then once having shown them and them having watched you, you're able then to to give them an opportunity to do the task and the work for themselves. Example is so crucial and so important to show people the, the pattern of that particular task. And beloved, that's the same way it is in the church. Some of you are familiar with General Patton, who was a great hero in World War II. A great hero. Stories are told about this man. And it is said that one of General Patton's soldiers recounted a time when they were marching across Europe and they came to a swollen river. And the soldiers, fearful, they began to complain that there was no way that they could cross the raging current carrying their backpacks. General Patton said nothing. But instead, he waded into the river himself. He swam to the other side with his backpack on. And then he proceeded to swim all the way back to where his men were. Then he waded back into the river and turned to his men and said, Now follow me. Follow me. And without hesitation or protest, every single one of those men in the battalion followed him and crossed to the other side. What a great reminder of the power of example, right? Example is the most powerful rhetoric, the most powerful tool of persuasion to get somebody to do something. Follow their example or set the example for that particular person and they will follow. Obviously, we want to be positive examples. And beloved, here in in Titus chapter 2, the necessity of example is implicit and explicit throughout the chapter. For example, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, when we saw the the godly qualifications of the elders, of the leaders in the church, why is it that these elders are to be godly men of character? Well, part and parcel of that is so that they might be examples to the flock. Because the flock needs examples. It isn't just enough to instruct them in sound doctrine, but also to live it out so that the flock has a, a pattern to follow. Example. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, Peter tells elders there that elders are not to be lording it over the flock, but they are to prove to be examples to the flock. Elders must be examples. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Timothy was to be an example. That's the case in leadership, beloved, and that's the case all over in the context of the church. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, as we're going to see in a few weeks, older women are to cultivate a particular type of character. Why? So that they set an example for the younger women in the church and teach them, yes, by way of instruction verbally, but also by means of their example. They are to be an example to the younger women. In Titus chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says to Titus, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And listen to this. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. Titus was to set an example for the younger men. And in chapter 3, verses 1 and following, we are instructed as a church to be submissive to and honor the governing authorities in our society. Why? Why? So that having been delivered and rescued from our foolish ways, our slavery to sin and our pleasures at at one point in time, the church is now to show herself an example to the world and put the gospel on display before a wicked world. Example. The church. The church is a public showcase. A store window of God's work in this world, beloved. And we are called to display the gospel in the way that we live. So embedded in this chapter is so much of this issue of example. And here in Titus chapter 2 verse 2 with reference to older men. Older men, the Christ-like character and mature conduct that you are called to have is really for a twofold purpose. If you think about it. One, you are called to this Christ-like character and mature conduct so that you might glorify God on this earth. But secondly, 
so that you might be an example to the younger generation. How do you, as an older man, run the race to win and finish well with a great burst of speed as you hit the finish line on this earth, however many years the Lord may be given to you? How do you do that? It is by fulfilling your call to invest yourself into the next generation. By making disciples. Being a disciple, making disciple. If I can put it that way. In fact, this is what all of us as believers are called to do here on this earth. That's why we are here. God has saved you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of the Son of His love that you might invest yourself into others, evangelizing, sharing the gospel. And then once people come in and know the Lord, investing yourself into them so that they might be conformed to the image of Christ. We are here to make disciples. Our Calvary mission statement reads this. Calvary Bible Church exists to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ by continuing His mission on earth of building His church by making disciples whose singular passion and pursuit is to know, love, and serve Christ, making other disciples who will do the same. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, that's the Great Commission, isn't it? The Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. We are to be baptizing, which implies that we need to share the gospel so that people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then once having done that, we are building them up in the Christian faith so that they may become more and more like Jesus. Teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded. That they would observe it. That they would walk in obedience to the Lord. Luke chapter 24 verse 47 puts it this way. The Lord Jesus says to his, to his disciples that they need to proclaim repentance to the world. That's the great commission there in different words. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses on this earth. That's the great commission. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. Paul talking about his own ministry, but by way of application, it is all of our ministries. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That is the great commission in different terminology, isn't it? And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, the things that I've taught you, pass them on to other men, who will pass them on to other men, who will pass them on to other men. Reproduction, multiplication. That is the great commission of making disciples. All of those texts are articulations of the same mission for us as believers. Older men, I want to remind you this morning that God has saved you from eternal punishment. He has forgiven you of your sins. Not so that you would live for yourself, but that you would now reproduce and multiply yourself into the next generation and bring glory to the Lord. And this must begin with those of us who are older because we set the tone beginning with us as leaders and then older men set the tone for the younger people amongst us. If we are not investing ourselves into the next generation, then they won't either. The baton won't be passed. It is the older's responsibility to train the younger. Same as a, maybe the mentality that you had with your own biological family. You know, they were your responsibility. You needed to be the breadwinner, provide for your home. You needed to be the one to shepherd your family. It is the same mentality that you bring into the church. The home is a microcosm of what should be happening church-wide. Your responsibility is to invest yourself into the younger generation. And sadly, if we're honest, in some of our cases, this is not happening. We are not multiplying or reproducing ourselves into the younger generation. What keeps us? What keeps us from fulfilling our call to multiply or reproduce ourselves? We put up various roadblocks, don't we? We make various excuses. For instance, excuse number one, we make it an issue of personality. Well... You know, it's just not my personality, this life-on-life -life stuff of investing myself into other people. It's not who I am. I'm kind of an introverted kind of person. I'm not wired this way. 
We make that excuse of personality and we forget about the fact that it's not about your personality, is it? It's about your responsibility. Jesus, older men and older women, I might say, Jesus did not say to you as a believer, if you are wired in a particular way, then go ahead and evangelize. Jesus didn't say, if you have an outgoing kind of personality, then go ahead and make disciples. He didn't give us that out. He gave us a command to lovingly follow and obey. To reproduce ourselves into others. And He knows exactly how He's wired you as a believer, even your own idiosyncrasies and personality, if you will. And so He calls you, even in the midst of that, to live well in this life and to be investing yourself into other people. As He has made you. So we use that excuse of personality. What about the excuse of just a sense of self-entitlement? Some of us are just self-entitled. Well, I put in my dues. I put in my time. I am now retired. It's time to relax and do what I always wanted to do in life. Maybe we don't articulate it that way. But that's kind of the mentality that we, that we uh, live with. Our lives show that. Let me ask you a question. Since you live that way, with that sense of self-entitlement and it shows forth in your life, if Jesus were to, were to be here face to face with you, if that were to happen, would you use that excuse? Would you say, Lord, I'm not investing myself into other people. I'm not multiplying myself. I'm not reproducing myself into others because, hey, I've already put in my work. I've served you enough on this earth. Now it's time for some me time. Would we say that to our Lord? I submit to you that we would not. We would not say that to our Lord. And yet, some of you live every single day as if your life speaks that. That's, the, that's what it's communicating. That it's all about you. It's all about your comforts. It's all about living for yourself. Some of us have a sense of false humility. That's another excuse. You know, we think, who am I? You know, I have too many issues, too many weaknesses of my own. I'm too much of a sinner. That's kind of how the way that we live. And can I just tell you, you're right about that one. You and I are sinners, undeserving sinners. That's what grace is. We were saved by grace, unmerited favor granted to us because of Jesus Christ. We are sinners. We have nothing to offer from the very beginning of our conversion. We brought nothing to the table. It's all about the righteousness of Christ, His perfect life and His death on the cross for our sins. And yet we can have this mentality as we live the Christian life as if, man, I'm too weak. I'm too much of a sinner. And so therefore I can't do anything. Be reminded every day, beloved, that you you were a sinner at the beginning and you continue to be a sinner. It's not about you. It's not about you. God calls you to invest yourself and to multiply yourself into others, not because you're worthy, but because He has given you a set of gifts and abilities to invest yourself into others. And you need to be faithful to that call. I've been reminded this year again as every year through our Bible reading, character after character after character in the Word of God. You look at every single individual, no matter how godly they were and how much they were used by God, they were sinful people. Weak people with various weaknesses and frailties of their own. And it wasn't about the individual characters in the Bible, was it? Ultimately, they, we don't read the stories or the accounts of these individuals involved so that we can elevate them and exalt them. It's about the God who worked through them, right? The God who worked through them. I love Solomon. We need to be like Solomon who in his older years, the latter years of his life, was zealous, zealous to impart wisdom to his son in the book of Proverbs. Most of the Proverbs are written by Solomon. And he calls upon his son to, to pay attention and to delight in instruction and to embrace and treasure his commandments and treasure those things. Why? Because Solomon has learned from life how his son needs to live. Ecclesiastes are his reflections looking back at his life. A life lived for pleasure, every pleasure imaginable, and yet he didn't live his life with God at the center of it. So he writes Ecclesiastes. Listen, Solomon was not a perfect man. 
And yet he was eager in the latter years of his life to impart wisdom, zealous so that others would learn from his mistakes and his sins and not be driven to the same level and degree of destruction and pain and suffering and affliction in their lives. We need to be like that. Now, as a side note, I should say this. I would say that if you're looking at your life as an older man and you're saying to yourself, how can I be an example to others when I'm living in unrepentant sin? Listen, if that's you, may I encourage you. This is a call for you to deal with your sin. That you might glorify God in your own sanctification first. And in your own investment into others. To confess your sin to the Lord and to others who can help you overcome your sin. You're right. You should be wrestling with that as an older man. That if you are living in unrepentant sin, I'm not talking about the common struggles. I'm not talking about the fact that all of us struggle with sin and you are too. I'm talking about living with known unrepentant sin in your life. And therefore, you know that you can be an example to others. I would say this is an opportunity, God's gracious call to you to turn from your sin. That you might glorify Him. That you might be an example to others. You can't call others to to live in a certain way, pointing out the speck in in someone else's eye while, while coddling the log in your own eye. You're right. So we use that excuse as well. What about guilt or regret? We don't fulfill our call to invest ourselves into others, to multiply or reproduce out of guilt or regret. Maybe you're paralyzed by your past. You're paralyzed by your, by your failures. You're guilt-ridden. You don't understand, I made too many mistakes, made too many bad choices. Why would I want to pass this on, my struggles to other individuals, when I really haven't lived a life of victory prior to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ? May I say to you that we all struggle with this, don't we? All of us do. There have been many a times when I've struggled with that. Just last uh, um, Sunday, we took communion together. And that's always such a a vivid reminder for me. Yes, celebration on the one hand. But before that, it is a reminder to me of my utter sinfulness prior to coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And even present sinfulness and weakness. And I was reminiscing last Sunday morning about uh, just as a kid... Literally, physically, as I was walking to the, to the bread shop to get bread for my biological mother as a kid, literally shaking my fist at heaven and saying, I hate you, God. I hate you. You certainly don't love me if you're allowing me to go through these things. I hate you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And it broke me last Sunday. Thinking about how could it possibly be that God could forgive me? And as you reflect upon your life, isn't that one of the hardest things for you to you grasp? How could it be? He knew all of my thoughts, knows all of my thoughts, knows all of my motivations, all of my sinful attitudes, all of the destructive, corrupt words towards others, all of the hate toward others, all of the refrain of loving other people, all of these things. He knows all of these things perfectly, and yet He forgives me. He forgives me in His Son. He's for me in Christ Jesus. May I remind you that you can invest yourself and multiply yourself into others because forgiveness is not just a pardon of your sin, the removal of the infinite debt that you had in Christ Jesus. But listen to me, it is the acquittal of your debt and of your guilt. He removes your guilt. 32 verse 5, David says this, I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my sin to you. David did that. He confessed. He came clean before the Lord. And then it says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Not only the sin, but the guilt of it. Some of you need to recognize that God has forgiven you. That God has forgiven you. That you don't need to live guilt-ridden over the things that you've done. That in Christ Jesus, those things have been nailed to the cross in Christ. Rest assured that preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And even as you interact with others, it isn't about your worthiness. It's about His gracious work through you. Amen? His gracious work through you. 
So stop saying to yourself that because you are a sinner or you have weaknesses, you can't invest yourself into others. God is for you in Christ Jesus, beloved. He is for you. Others of us make the excuse of what I call pessimism. We, we don't multiply ourselves or reproduce ourselves into others out of pessimism, which is a subtle form of pride. I began talking about this a little bit last week. Simply put, you're pessimistic toward the younger generation. You're pessimistic. You have a negative outlook on the youth of our day. And I'm not talking about just teens, but the younger people, younger couples, younger individuals. And that mindset drives you to not invest yourself into others, into others who are younger. I've heard older men speak negatively about younger people, about the young teens, about the younger single people, about the younger married people, very pessimistically, very negatively, almost as if they're a nuisance. They just don't get it. Almost with a sense of disgust or disdain. I want to ask you who are older this morning, is this your outlook on youth? Is this your outlook on youth? They just get in the way. They don't understand. You know what the problem is with many of us, including myself? We have forgotten that we were young once. Right? We've forgotten how hard it is to be young in some ways as well. We think, well, in our day we just knew better. We always thought differently. We've almost like glorified, deified ourselves, right? As we look back, well, we always did the best thing. No, we didn't. And no, you aren't. We thought some of the same foolish things and did some of the same foolish things and even worse kinds of things. Amen? We were to ask people for testimonies. You guys could bear witness of that. See, that's our mindset. As we look at the younger generation, we forget about putting ourselves in their shoes. I included. Mindset drives action. As you think of those who are younger, so you will treat them accordingly. If you have a, a low view of youth or youthfulness, then rather than having an open heart and taking the initiative to reach out to those who are younger and investing yourself into them, befriending them, instead of doing that... You will avoid them. You will be indifferent to them. You will give them the stink eye. You know what I'm talking about, right? You will simply just be mean-spirited and it will show forth in your countenance. And what is worse, you will cheat yourself out of the blessing of investing yourself into the next generation and experiencing the exhilaration of knowing that you've invested yourself into a soul that will go on forever and ever and ever. Think about that. See, if we keep our own weakness in mind as older people, then we will have greater compassion and a greater willingness to invest ourselves into the younger generation. For others of you, the excuse is just flat-out disobedience. You don't have an excuse. You're just disobedient to this call to multiply or reproduce yourself. You simply don't want to. You simply don't want to. And this one for me is the most dangerous of them all. Most dangerous of them all. Because it gets into the, the realm of desire. Into the realm of affections. Into the realm of, of internal attitudes toward a particular command that God has given us as people, as believers. And the question that you ought to be asking yourself, if you're just flat out disobedient and you don't see why this is even important according to the word of God, the question that you should be asking yourself is why? Why don't I desire to invest myself into the lives of other people beginning with the younger generation? Why as an older man am I lethargic and complacent and I don't desire to invest myself into the life of another younger man? Why? It may be that there's a sin that you're harboring and not repenting of that has taken a hold of you and is ch choking your desire to obey in that area. Think about that. Unrepentant sin in our lives that is unconfessed before the Lord and before other people chokes our desire for obedience. That could be the case in the life of some of you older men. 
who have learned to coddle certain sins and you don't want to let go of them. So therefore, there is no desire. You don't want to do these things. Or maybe your lack of desire to obey reveals that you have never had a relationship with the Lord. That is a tough one, isn't it? Even as an older man, you need to examine yourself. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. If there isn't a pattern or even a desire to obey. Maybe one day you, you prayed a prayer a long time ago. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you, you made a previous profession. Maybe you made some, you believed some set of facts, intellectual facts about Jesus, but you didn't really believe from your heart that he could save you and that there is forgiveness in Christ because you saw your own sinfulness before a holy God. Maybe you made that profession. You believe that set of facts, but there is no spiritual fruit in your life. Even worse, there is no desire to obey the Lord. You don't love the Lord. You go through the motions. You go through religion. You go through external acts that you think are going to find acceptance before the Lord. But you don't do them because you love the Lord and out of gratitude for His saving grace in your life. For you, this is God's gracious reminder that you need to turn from your sin even at your, the latter years of your life and put your faith in Jesus that you may be saved from this wicked generation, from your sins. He who is truly born again, though we may struggle, desires to honor and obey the Lord out of gratitude for what He's done for us. Because we love Him, because He's our, our Savior who has died for our sins, that is the greatest motivation for me to want to walk in obedience because I know what He's done for me. I know that. And I know that at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about He did that for the glory of His Father first and foremost. But how beautiful that the Father chose to glorify Himself in the salvation of sinners through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful and remarkable? That's the greatest motivation to obey. Some of you don't Obey and simply don't want to obey because you don't understand God's saving grace. Even though you're older and you've been sitting under message after message after message over the years, there's no love for the Lord. There's no appreciation for what He has done, namely saving you, if that's what He has done. Perhaps one last excuse is this. I simply don't know how. I don't know how to multiply myself, reproduce myself into others. How do I do that, Kempis? How do I do that? Well, what do we learn from our Lord Jesus? What do we learn from his example? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, we learn that Jesus called for a commitment first and foremost from people, didn't he? In Matthew 4, 19, he called a few individuals. He said, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus challenged people to leave everything behind in order to follow him. What principle do we learn from that? as far as disciple-making goes, that we need to call people to a commitment, right? That's what evangelism is, isn't it? We share the gospel of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ so that people would surrender the living for self so that they might live for the glory of God now, that they might turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And even as once somebody has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they're growing in their, their Christianity, we call for a commitment from people to come and meet with us so that we might invest into them. Jesus called for a commitment, didn't he? For a commitment. And what did he do then? He spent time with individuals. He spent time with them. So there was commitment and then there was time. Jesus was the busiest man that ever lived, but always had time for people, didn't he? Always had time for people. Sacrificing his time, formal teaching and informal teaching, showing them a life. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 7 through 8, that, that he and his partners were, were well pleased not only to impart the gospel to the Thessalonians, but also their own lives because they had become very dear to them. Not only did they proclaim the message of the gospel, but they lived their lives before the Thessalonian believers. There was time and sacrifice uh, and invested and passed on to these Thessalonians. So Jesus called for a commitment. He gave of his time. And also this, he instructed there was content that he passed on to those that followed him. 
He did this in his teaching, formal teaching, and in his informal example. That's how he, he, he uh, imparted instruction, both in, 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 in teaching and the way that he lived his life before the disciples. What kind of an example did he set for the disciples? Remember John chapter 13, where he stooped down to wash the stinky feet of the disciples? They were floored by that. How could it be? Peter says, never shall you wash my feet, right? How could it be that my Lord is doing it, stooping down to do that? And remember what Jesus said in John 13? If I, being the teacher and master, do this for you, you should follow my steps as well and do that for others, essentially, right? They needed to, have a, to, have, to be uh, leading by way of humble service. That's the example that Jesus set for the disciples. He lived it for them. What about prayer? He set an example of prayer to them, didn't he? So much so that in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples ask him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. You know why they were asking him that? Because he was a man of prayer. And so therefore they wanted to follow his example, teach us to pray. And so he taught them to pray. That was the Lord's prayer that he uttered there in Luke chapter 11. He gave them a vision, didn't he? He set an example of, of, a, of a singular mission. And that was the great commission to go and make disciples, which was what he modeled when he walked on this earth. Jesus was a disciple maker. And in doing that, in pursuing people, he showed his disciples love, love for people, that they need to seek, seek after those who are lost. So note, Jesus, his example was that he called for a commitment, he spent time with people, he imparted instruction, content, by formal teaching and his modeling of a life. And it was purposeful, wasn't it? They learned a person, the Lord Jesus, they related to him, it was a relationship, and they learned a way of life. They got to know their Savior and how he lived. And in so doing, they became more and more like Jesus, right? They became more and more like Christ. What do we learn from this? What do we learn from this about what disciple making entails? That to disciple, to disciple someone, to invest into someone, to reproduce ourselves into someone is first and foremost personal and relational. It's life on life, not from a distance. And yes, we have certain limitations different than in the first century today. But even within those limitations, we need to be, be, be pursuing relationships with one another. That is part and parcel of, of what disciple-making means. So it's personal and relational. Secondly, it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. We must be willing to joyfully give of our time and resources and energy of sharing our lives with somebody else. That's what our Lord Jesus did. And then it's goal-oriented, isn't it? It's personal or relational. It's sacrificial. It's goal-oriented. You spend time with someone to help them become like Jesus. We are not spending time with people so that they would follow us per se, but follow us to the extent that we are following Jesus, right? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As I am of Christ. What will this take practically, beloved? What will these principles take practically? Well, can I encourage you? If you want... Your multiplication, your reproducing into the lives of others to be organic and, and natural and not forced or coerced. Listen to me. Simply stated, get involved. Get plugged in into the life of the church. Some of you are very good about this, and others of you, it's amazing. I hear people complaining that relationships are not happening in their lives. And then I look around in events that the church has where we're trying to be intentional about people building relationships with one another, especially you older men, and you are simply not there. You're not there. I have spoken to, to people who complain that they don't have any relationships, but then you look around in, the, in small groups and those individuals are not in small groups. They're not plugged in or involved in those contexts where relationships can be cultivated. Secondly, get serving. Get involved. Get serving. Listen, be an example of humble servanthood. Be an example of humble servanthood. This week it was so encouraging. 
We had a need as a family, and a couple of the elders actually came over and physically uh, imparted wisdom to us in a particular situation. They, they showed me what humble service looks like as a younger man, that they would, they would be willing to do that. You need to get, get going as far as serving and meeting the needs of people in the context of the church. And I know that there are limitations with age. We understand that. But if your heart is to serve as an older man and in so doing set an example for the younger, listen, there are always opportunities to do that. And you need to be on the, on the forefront of some of those things. Even given your limitations. When was the last time that you as an older man went out of your way to meet the need of somebody? Whether older or younger. When was the last time that you served someone? That you showed kindness to them? That you imparted a, a word of wisdom to someone in a particular life need that they had spiritually or social or financial or whatever. When was the last time that you invested time into that? So get involved. Get serving. Thirdly, reach out. Simply reach out to someone. Listen, invite a younger person out for coffee. This la- or Two weeks ago, an older man did that for me. And this last week we met, we met for, for a meal over lunch, and I was amazed to hear the testimony of this man, how the Lord saved him and his life journey. I learned in that hour that I was sitting in front of that older man a lot about life. I cherish and treasure those times. How many of you older men reach out to the younger and just invite them out for coffee, invite them out for a meal? Take a younger couple and invite them over older couples and just have a meal. Have some tea. How many of you have reached out to just encourage somebody spiritually? So, well, what kinds of things should I be asking if I am to meet with individuals or meet as, as couples that way? Well, first of all, ask them about how their walk with the Lord is going. Hey, what are you reading right now? Hey, how is your time in prayer? What are, the, what are those struggles and sins that you're wrestling with right now so that I can be praying for you? Oh yeah, that is, by the way, one of the things that I struggled with when I was younger. And I'm still wrestling to that, with that sin to some extent or another. Ask them about their personal devotion to the Lord. How their sanctification is going. The process of becoming conformed to the image of Jesus. Ask them how, how their family is doing. Ask them about how they're doing as a husband, you older men. Asking the younger men, how are you doing in shepherding your wife? And what does that look like? What kinds of things are you spending time talking to her about with relation to the Lord? How was your prayer time with her? Oh, you're not praying with her? You need to be praying for her because let me tell you what happens when you don't pray together. Right? Talk to them about their involvement in the church. The need to be committed to the church because it's the bride of Christ, the people of Jesus that he redeemed and purchased with his own blood. Talk to them about wisdom in terms of their own job environment and how you might be praying for them in that environment. Those are some of the things that we can be talking to one another about, you see. These are not things that you don't know, beloved, I know. But they're things that fall off the radar, and then time goes and years pass, and before you know it, you're not investing yourself. If you were to do a survey of your week, you're not investing yourself on a consistent basis with anybody. You know the right thing to do, but you do not do it. Therefore, it is sin to you. Young people, can I say this as we close? You young people need to appreciate the older saints among us. And that goes for me too. See, this cuts both ways, doesn't it? On the one hand, they should be investing into the younger. But on the other hand, we who are younger need to be open to the influence and the input of the older saints amongst us. And some of us, frankly, are proud and arrogant, and we will not ever ask for that. Because we think we have all the answers as younger people. And maybe we don't communicate that verbally, but we live that way. Because we never interact with those who are older. We are uncomfortable being around them. Can I say something to you young men? You ought to be seeking the input and the investment of an older man in your life if you're not doing it already. Informally or formally. For coffee or just to come alongside of them in whatever they're doing in life. Going and visiting them in their home if they're too, too old already to be able to get out and be out and about. You ought to be the one going and initiating those kinds of times. And gleaning from, the, from the, the treasure chest of wisdom that these men have to impart to us as younger men. Seek them out. Seek them out. Ask questions about life and their experiences and their victories and their mistakes. You want to grow in this area, by the way? Why don't you go and, and reach out to Dale Ventries, one of our deacons, and, and go visit some of our elderly. 
at the Burbank Healthcare and other places where they're at and be reminded of, the, of where life is heading and of the importance of investing into the older saints and hearing from their wisdom and what they've learned. Cultivate a heart, a heart of, 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 of inviting the input of older saints into your life if you're younger. See, oftentimes we who are younger make the older saints feel invisible. We make them feel as if they're irrelevant. Sometimes we don't mean to do that. But we have this mentality that, that there's vice in oldness and that newness is virtue, right? As one man put it, oldness is no vice and newness is no virtue. Just because something or someone is older doesn't make them any less important. On the contrary, it makes them all the more valuable and indispensable to the church, doesn't, doesn't it? They're valuable and indispensable. And so we need to honor, we who are younger, the gray-haired gray among us, if I can put it that way. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy and instructs, gives instructions about how to treat the older men and the older women in the church. And you know how he calls upon us to treat the older women and older men in the church? The older men as fathers and the older women as mothers. How should we treat them? Honor them. Respect them. Hold them in high esteem because they've lived a long life and they've learned many things and there's much that we have to learn from them. See, this is what this chapter is all about. Cultivating a culture of disciple-making, right? Cultivating a culture of disciple-making. This is not a, any man's philosophy. This is Jesus' master plan for building His church. Jesus builds His church flock by, making, by using us to make disciples. Evangelism, telling people about Jesus so they would come to know Jesus. Edification, building them up in the faith so that they might become like Jesus. All of this leading to exaltation so that all of us as a community are worshiping Jesus together now and for eternity. For eternity. And the church that is committed to this type of discipleship and disciple-making is a mature church. You want to measure our maturity as a church? Here it is right here. Are we investing ourselves at a, in a, at a high level, intensely, passionately, in, in the lives of other people, in the lives of one another? Is this happening amongst us? Are we practicing the one another's? Are we sacrificing our time? Are we going out of our way to challenge one another as far as our spiritual walk with the Lord? This is a test of a mature church right here. Philip Jensen writes this, A maturing church will be holy, sanctified, and different than the world, having members who are Christ-like in character and life. Such members will all be committed to the salvation of mankind, for this was the very mission of the Christ. A holy huddle of people Uncommitted to evangelism and edification is not holy, for its members are not like Christ. End quote. Jesus had a heart for people, didn't he? And we need to have a heart for people as well. And if we don't, there's a deeper spiritual problem. Older men, is this your aspiration? Is your aspiration to be a mature Christ-like man who reproduces yourself, who multiplies yourself into the lives of others? Is this your desire? Well, Andrew Bonar was a 19th century Scottish preacher. And at the beginning of his ministry, something was said to him that every Christian man should ponder. Quote, Remember that very few men and very few ministers keep up to the end the edge that was on their spirit at their first. In other words, very few Christian men continue to grow and develop and mature as Christians right to the close of their lives. Of many of them, it can be said with sad truth that spiritually they are not the men they were in their younger days. Let that not be true of any older Christian who reads these words. Let it rather be your aspiration to exhibit the qualities enjoined on you here and to do so increasingly to the end of your days. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the reminder and the challenge for all of us but in particular to older men in the church, of how indispensable and so needed they are in the church, of the powerful influence that they can have in the lives of the next generation, especially of younger men. Light a fire, Father, in this place.
in the form of a passion for one another's growth, that we would at a high level be disciple makers who multiply and reproduce ourselves into others. Lord, we know that ultimately the, the engine that drives us is love for you and love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, grow and increase fervently our love for you and for your mission. And for one another, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.